Welcome to Edify Presents the Future of Broadcasting at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Please welcome your guest moderators, Liam Klimek and Will Reed. Hello. Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for coming. Good to see so many people here. Um, we're really excited about this one. Uh, and so I won't waste too much time talking about us. But we are Edify. We do this all the time. Keep up to date, go and look what we've been up to, and, uh, and yeah, should, should find it interesting. Without further ado, I will introduce to our panel. We've got Blaze, Femi, Terence, and Martha. And it would be good to kick off with a little bit of uh, kind of one minute who you are, what you do, to get going. Blaze? Uh, I'm Blaze. I started Boiler Room in 2010, uh, and I day to day uh, run the company and obviously the kind of different. Um, things we're doing from music programming to editorial to production and to obviously commercial and keeping it running um and yeah sweet hi i'm femi i started nts in 2011 and um i've been running it for the past we're coming up to our fourth birthday in april um yeah that's me hey i'm uh, terence i'm the editor of nowness we launched almost five years ago. I think in February is going to be our fifth anniversary. Um, we basically are a platform, if you've never seen what we do before, it's kind of like a platform, digital magazine, whatever you want to call it. But basically our main thing is we premiere one film a day with all the stuff everywhere. We do one exclusive digital premiere a day. It's always films. My name's Martha. I work at BBC Radio 1 on Annie Nightingale and Pete Tong shows. Uh, and I do my own show on Represent, which is a youth-led radio station in South London. Sweet, sweet, sweet. And uh, just to give a kind of little bit more context before we get into the meter stuff, um, if you could each kind of give a bit of a run-up to what you were doing before you found yourselves in the exciting stuff that you're doing now and kind of how things got started, that would be cool. I don't know who wants to take that on first. Go with you again, please. Okay. Uh, I was... Um I started doing, started uh, when I left school at 18, I started my own company doing events and I then, and we were doing kind of uh, fairly vapid events, but making some money off it. And so I didn't go to university. And then uh, when I was 20, I started doing more kind of mu music focused uh, concerts with sort of club nights and concerts with people that I actually cared about and listened to. Uh, and then started doing weirdly it sounds weird now but started doing events for 14 to 18s which was called all age concerts and it was basically 14 plus concerts for commercial but good bands uh, people who were starting to tour and play festivals um and set up a kind of fairly cobbled together franchise of it around the uk uh and then through that met a lot of music industry people we got lots of recognition didn't make any money uh and i shut that down and started up a um, what we were calling a magazine for young people by young people called Platform, uh, which uh, we got a small amount of music industry investment for, uh, ran that for a bit. Uh, again, it was sort of great, but didn't really make any money uh, and couldn't survive. And I then started like a different, I started a building, <laughs> a building project because I thought it was going to be stable and uh, maybe provide me an income. And that was a nightmare. But we did end up with this 24,000 square foot building, which I was running my office from, which was three people at the time. And when faced with, you know, what do we do with this website um, that's kind of, you know, has become a passion project. Uh, my passion at the time and still is was music. And 
then had the idea of boiler room uh, and we set it we called it boiler room because we set it up in a, an old uh, disused coal-fired boiler room in a factory actually Femi was one of the first house and curators uh, in 2010 but anyway that's that's what led to me doing that lots of different uh, endless LTD companies starting and shutting nice 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 um, so um, so in around 1999 I went into uni I went to university in Luton did the masters in advertising came out 2002-2003 I spent a little extra than I should have spent down there spent an extra year down there had to do a year again um, was lucky enough to get a job at American Apparel um, um, at the time, American Apparel was just hiring young people, and they just hired me to manage the online department in the UK. It was a job I'd never done before. Um, but um, so I started doing that, had that job for three to four years, so I was about 27. Um, got fired at the age of 27, started um, my own business, started a cleaning business. I was like getting to ethical cleaning, I don't know why I tried it. Um, um, tried to clean people's windows, I thought I could do something with it, it didn't work out. Um, then around the age of 28, um, just had it, I'd already sort of done pirate radio at a uh, sort of young age with some friends in um, Edmonton, North London, and um, that didn't really work out. But at the age of 28, I sort of had the urge to do it again, but without just doing it, using the internet rather than doing it pirate. Um, did that um, while setting it up, I was sort of hosting the boiler. Yeah, and the reason was, because yeah. throughout all of that, he was an amazing, amazing DJ. I was DJing all that time as well, so I forgot to mention all of that. So I was DJing, I've, I've been DJing around London for like a few years, and I think from that, I was able to sort of pull in people, to sort of, when we first started NTS actually, to get people to come into the radio station. But for a year before I started doing, um, before I launched NTS, I was sort of, um, when I was working in it, I was also doing the boiler room shows with Blades. And then 2011, fully went into it, and um, yeah, been doing it since. Sweet. Cool. Uh, yeah, actually, weirdly, I met Febby through when he was DJ, and when I used to DJ, actually, a very long time ago. Um, my journalist kind of thing started, like I'm sure a lot of people started as a failed musician. Um, I tried to, I went to music college and tried to make beats and become a producer, and then realised I was crap. And then so you start writing about it because you totally love it. Um, I started writing for zines, and literally at that time when I wanted. Yeah, just writing for music magazines. Like literally writing for like 25 music magazines a month. Can't pay gas. And then I sent all my stuff into Dazed and Confused. Um, weirdly, the editor, well, the music editor at the time chose one of my pitches and put it up front. And then after that, I ended up working at Dazed kind of as a music journalist every month. Um, and at the same time, writing for you know loads and loads of different people. Then I came on at Dazed full time. Uh, I set up the global kind of platform called Satellite Voices, which is basically a two-year program where we set up a kind of mini version of Dazed at, around the world. So this idea that it was in Moscow, in Tokyo, in Paris, in Rome, in Shanghai. So I was a global editor of that, and that kind of opened up this idea of that transition be between becoming a writer to an editor. Um, and then I left Dazed and got a call from Nowness, basically, to come in as a consultant to try and... The, the idea of Nowness was to change Nowness or evolve Nowness. Um, I got a call, weirdly, when I'd moved into doing some film stuff. And then I came back. The idea was to do it for three months um, as a consultancy. Within three days, I was like, these people are amazing, and I love it. And we really got along. And then within three days, they asked me to be, basically be the editor. So, yeah. Amazing. Cool. Um, I left school three years ago. I'm 21. Um, and I went Whoa. straight... <laughs> 
I went straight um, to do art foundation, but it wasn't really for me. Uh, and I was working Mondays at BBC London, so uh, the art foundation people weren't so happy about me not turning up. Um, and then the BBC London stuff was really, really boring, uh, and they saw that I was really, really bored, and they gave me a mentor at Radio 1, um, who's just like always had my back, which has been amazing. Um, and then... Uh, I was asked to do an apprenticeship at the BBC, which is like a year-long scheme where you kind of work in like various different parts of the BBC. Uh, so I was at Six Music and One Extra and then Radio One, and I just kind of never really left and I've sort of clung on. Uh, and then this whole time, like when I was 16, uh, I joined Represent, which is like a youth club, what <laughs> was a youth club at the time in South London, uh, and is now like a fully-fledged FM radio station with all the presenters are under 25 years old. And it's like an amazing platform for, firstly, for young people to shout about music that they like. And then secondly, it's an amazing stepping stone for people uh, who want to get into like media, but maybe aren't from a certain background or like just literally don't have a clue where to start. Um, so, yeah, that's me. Cool. Thank you. Um, so looking at, you know, getting your foot in the door and Femi, you know, looking at post uh, cleaning windows, um, when you started at NTS, what was your sort of technical understanding of, of starting um, a radio station? I, um, I didn't really have much understanding about it. I'd, um, when I did decide to do it, I just decided to sort of... Um, I'm, I'm not very tech. I'm not a very techy person, um, especially when it comes to sort of code and st online streaming and that sort of stuff. But um, I decided to just spend like a good year just focusing and just like trying to learn and trying to understand how things work. Um, and I'm, when we first when when we first launched, because there wasn't any money in the beginning, um, I'd sort of managed to save up some money from doing from the few cleaning jobs that we'd done, the company had done. Um, I I was able to sort of pull in. So there's there's two sides of the tech. There's sort of the music tech and the setting up a studio. And there's also the online tech, making sure everything's streaming right and the internet's working right. Um, the music side, the music tech side was fine because I've been DJing for a few years and I know how things work with studios and stuff like that. But the web stuff was a little bit trickier. But I managed to sort of study it for a year and just look into how it could work and try all these different things. And um, so it was, it was just, just mainly a lot of trial and error until I actually got there in the end. And yeah, that was it. And then Blaze, how about Boiler Room? Where, where was that first step into... Um, I, I mean, I've always been all right on computers, but um, and I, you know, I had a basic knowledge of I think the first boiler, and we were using my turntables and mixer, and we bought a really crap pair of CDJs, um, uh, not even CDJs, the ones that like the whole like a CD shelf thing. Um, and then from the streaming side of things, like Femi said, we you know part of the idea was born out of um, UStream existing, which at the time was extraordinary because to for the for me the idea of like trying to film three or four hours of video content, uh, I'd imagine having to do that on like a little Canon digital camera with a really big memory card. Uh, and then I saw a whole bunch of people that I knew, like people like One Man and Bok Bok and MK who'd been doing these yardcasts and streaming with their laptop um, webcam on Ustream for free. So the answer is I'd had no knowledge about streaming at all, but that was an incredibly simple. And weirdly, radio was almost more complicated back then. Like that people were coming up with ways to stream video, I guess, because it was, you know, a, a way to stream video, and that was, there was like a plug-and-play solution with Ustream. Um, so, yeah, really for part of the reason we started the thing was because you could plug in a USB webcam and turn that into a 
some kind of a TV broadcast. Um, but Do you yeah. remember what the first show? What the first show was? Yeah, it was me, uh, Femi, Tristan, Tick, Tristan, Ollie, Ollie, Nick, Ollie Bam, Danger. Um, there's a whole bunch of us. It's like seven of us out there. Seven, eight of us. I, don't th- I think like people who watched online throughout that whole thing must have been about 80 people, but it was so skippy. It was like yeah. everything. <laughs> but, um, uh, and it was pretty much like that for the first six months. But actually now I've got kind of a good grip on what, how that stuff works. But, um. And Terence, how did the... Working as a writer at Dazed, what, do you remember a specific point where you realised that you wanted to pursue video as a, as a, you know, as a creative output? Uh, not, not really. Just more the idea of always being into film, basically, like like most people are, to be honest. And when I was at Days, you're a music writer, and you're kind of pigeonholed as much as the music is, and you become really into that. At the same time, actually, like I was saying, I met Femi first uh, through DJing, and so I used to DJ and throw parties, and they were all about a certain type of music, and that certain type of music I'd write about. We'd book the same. We'd book the DJs. We just get into the industry through that. But then at the same time, you're writing about the same stuff every month. And so you just branch out and everyone, I'm sure, is into film, into writing, into just bigger things. Uh, Not bigger things, bigger things, but just a wider range of interests. Uh, So that got into more film. And yeah, and then, yeah, I've always really been into film. What was the first big film that you worked on and you were like, okay, this is is amazing? the best thing actually was um, this documentary called Beautiful Losers. I don't know if anyone knows it here, but basically it was the first time that as a freelancer, I, I, this is quite a good story, I got sent to um, Korea to, go and do a f- uh, to basically go and do a piece around kind of street culture, hip hop in Korea. This was like 2008. It was really exciting. It was like, you go there, you, you know, just see what's going on. And I, weirdly, I made this very, very crappy, sketchy film for days, but it was mostly about just writing a feature. And I met the producer of this film called Beautiful Losers, and I was obsessed with Aaron Rose and DIY art and skateboarding. I skated at the time. And so I remember being in the taxi with the producer of Beautiful Losers, who was out there for this kind of street culture festival, and him saying that the BFI were going to launch his film. And they wanted to launch it with like break dancers and skateboarders, and it was so lame. And so, literally drunk in the back of a cab, I pitched him what I would do. I never really worked on film before, but I just pitched him what I'd want to do. And literally, when we got back to London, he emailed me saying, do you want to do this? And it was for the Beautiful Losers launch. It's like London Film Festival, BFI. Uh, Nike had paid for it. So that was my first realm into going, okay, let's do this. Let's work with Nike. Let's work with brands. Let's work with artists and directors and just try and build something bigger. And Femi and Blaze, Martha, do you guys remember a thing where it was like, oh, wow, this is moving faster than we probably expected it might have done? Um, For me, it was probably after the first six months. um, I sort of, it was was a real punt. I was like, I'm just going to try this and see what happens. Um, I've had nothing to lose, basically. I was just like, I got to the point where I was like, it's 28. I don't want to work for anyone else. I'm going to actually do something I actually love doing, which is uh, music, be involved in music one way or another. And um, I just after the first six months, when people, when we were getting emails from people like Digo and Theo Parrish saying, that I, we really like the ethos of the station, that you know, when I'm in London next, I want to come on. I was like, all right, cool. It's starting to get serious now. And then I had to sort of drop everything else and then just focus on that as a full-time thing. And yeah, that's... Yeah, for, we had, um, 
because uh, we we obviously we could monitor how many people were, were watching and listening uh, throughout the whole growth of it, um, and you saw numbers going up, and you had artists starting to write to you who'd seen it, saying, um, you know, being being up for being involved uh, for, for Boiler Room. But then the really the, the moment that really stood out was when we first left the country and left London. Uh, and we went to Berlin and we did a show there and we had, I turned up at this venue, we didn't even know the guy who was putting it together for us. He was a guy we'd met who is called Mikhail, who we now work with all the time in Germany and who is our director there and who uh, was a, all we knew was a curator at Bergheim. He was great and really nice and he'd offered to, for 200 quid to find a venue and a sound system and book Red Sheep, Red Shape, Cosimos, uh, Just Said and, and uh, an Object. And we went out there and it was like, you know, Boiler Room didn't even have a website. We were still embedding it on this youth magazine that I was running at the time, Platform. And um, we we didn't even have a Facebook or Twitter or even a logo. It was just the sign of the, the room. It was really a, a budget operation. And we went out there and we had like 400 people queuing. The venue was packed. We walked through and it was this incredible... He'd taken it so literally with German and it was like actually a boiler room underneath a swimming pool he'd managed to find in, in Reading. And um, the extraordinary thing and the, re the thing that made it tangible and like real as to how important had become was stepping outside of London and speaking to the people at that event who would come up to you and go, oh my God, like that's, you know, Boiler Room's the thing I've been uh, sort of almost taking part in the London music scene through. And we realized we actually sort of wrote our kind of like philosophy just after that as we, as we were launching a website and stuff. Uh, and it, we realized we, you know, for, for six to 12 months, we'd been this keyhole into the UK music scene. And you know, although we'd seen numbers grow, I hadn't really no tangible evidence of like what it represented because it, ultimately all the people around me didn't really need to watch something like that. They were in it and well, you could go to plastic people and you could go to venues and so on. And where it was really valuable was all these people around the world who made up our audience, who were using this very lo-fi broadcasting as a way of like accessing something they wouldn't have been able to be part of otherwise. And so, yeah, for me, the first moment was going outside of London to Berlin and seeing this crazy interest. And incidentally, when we went to Berlin as well, it completely dwarfed, like the, the surge of interest all around the world that came to our site dwarfed what we'd experienced in the UK. So it sort of took us outside of our little bubble and... Um, I remember weirdly being like in this weird meeting and someone telling me that at one point, this is amazing, it could be Taito Abame, but that Boiler Room was basically getting more viewers, simultaneous viewers than Channel 5. And I was like... <laughs> but maybe you. that's not difficult. <laughs> yeah, we got featured on the Ustream homepage, and that, like, I don't know how real the views were. That's the thing, you don't, like, you get told these numbers, and we live in a world where it's like, people talk about community, and they talk about millions and millions of people. Whereas we're like, if 5,000 or 10,000 people sit and watch a boiler room or listen to an NTS or whatever, that's the biggest venue that artist who's performing will ever play. And if those people are actually getting that, like, that's a community. 10 million people on Facebook. Like, I don't even, I have no community on Facebook. I don't actually hang out with people, talk about shared interests, really. It's just a sort of mass dump anyway. I, I probably focus on the 800 people I know in there. Um, or three of them, I don't know. Anyway. And uh, Martha, um, do you think you're with represent it's almost like the opposite and it's like a community feel of people that are in on what the DJs are playing and are in on the scene rather than people looking up from the outside. Yeah, definitely. Morley's is apparently the favorite, represent is apparently the favorite station of Morley's, <laughs> um, which as like a South Londoner, that's a big deal. Um, and I, I guess one of the things we like to see is that the way that we're impacting our actual community, like walking around, like we've been in Peckham for many, many, many years and Peckham is like pretty cool now. Um, so it's really cool to like grow with that and like be involved in a community and a part of London that's changing so much. 
And then how does that feel in comparison to working with the BBC? It's like yeah. the opposite, right? Yeah, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, completely. But then the good thing about Represent is that you can like literally do whatever you want on air and you can take loads of risks with the broadcast and just take it wherever you want. So. So now you guys are all kind of gatekeepers of some pretty big platforms and, and some pretty big exposure for people. How do you decide what gets on there? And people, what's, the, what's the makeup of people coming to you? And what's the kind of freedom? This is like a million questions in one now. But what's like the freedom, um, for example, on an NTS show? Are you saying like what people should be playing, that kind of stuff? No, I mean, the whole ethos behind, the whole fr- the, behind NTS is... That, or the, the idea behind NTS is that as soon as you get into that studio you're free to do whatever you want no one tells you what to do no one no one you know just there's no restrictions obviously there's the obvious you can't be homophobic or racist and all that stuff but there's everything else is free to play what you want to play talk about what you want to talk about um the the screening process before that is uh is uh is the it can be it's the tricky part sometimes you know because Again, we we do something a lot of play, a, a lot of radio stations don't do, which is cover vast genres. We cover everything from grime to classical, yeah. you know, um, and um, and that's never really been done before. Um, and so we, you know, it's it really is it really is just finding people who are more who are passionate about stuff because there are a lot of people who like to jump on things who think they actually want to do something because it might be cool to do it rather than actually doing it for the sake of actually loving what they do. And um, I think that part can be quite tricky to sort of differentiate between the two, those two types of people. Well, four years of doing it now, fuck, to be able to work it out, you know. Yeah, and I think, like, uh, vaguely similar, we, you know, the whole reason we created Boiler Room was because we were frustrated that at the time it, there was almost this idea that if you wanted to promote and broadcast a message to the world, you know, TV and magazines and the traditional media was your route to it. And to do that, you had to compromise what you wanted to do. You had to play a certain type of set that was playlist friendly or daytime friendly or whatever. And it seemed a bit unfair and frustrating. The whole point of creating a room with a webcam was not to purposefully have like a lo-fi aesthetic or anything. It was so that we could afford to be idealistic week in, week out. And the reason we asked Femi is one of our first uh, guests, and he pretty much built the show with us, was like, we wanted people to be able to do absolutely anything they wanted. So similar to Femi, like now it's it's about maintaining an environment in terms of, I guess, the way I think of us, I'm not as expert as Femi sort of personally on the music side of things anymore, sadly. No, uh, a bit. I know my bit, but I don't know enough. And uh, but so I, we work with a lot of different curators around the world. Uh, but the thing I make sure of is that we do not put a sort of commercial pressure on them in terms of like the numbers that uh, you know, the sort of results that each show must 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 yield. Um, and and we make sure that as as sort of the bigger we get, the more we expand, that that creative freedom is a sort of key point that anyone watches Boiler Room. The one thing it does change is, you know, a lot we do events and we do shows at broadcast from events as well as shows with no people in the room at all. And of course, when there's a crowd of people in a room, it can change the type of set, for example, like a dance DJ might play or a grime DJ might play. Um, But we provide generally both ends of the spectrum because we think both are interesting. And I guess you've got like a million people that are now trying to get on Boiler Room, but on the other side, do you have like a hit list of people that you that you want on that you haven't been able to catch just yet? I think, the, no, the people I care about the most are the people who like, you know, there's a big kind of culture in underground music, which is, I guess the term we use, it's a bit of a nonsense term, but, you know, in underground music, there's a big culture of people almost not wanting that scene to be propelled forward because yeah, I think yeah, yeah. They, they associate the idea of the underground rising out with the traditional, which is that traditionally it's had to get shit for that to yeah. rise through. Um, 
And that's not what we do. We, we've completely built this on our own terms and we've remained idealistic and we haven't compromised. But I guess for me, the biggest mission is not necessarily a huge hit list. It's, the, it's sort of almost redeeming ourselves with the people who kind of hate us yeah, for bursting yeah, through yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. And so I always, you know, if I hear of an artist that doesn't want to play Boiler Room this month, I'm like, hmm, and I want to work on that and like change whatever it is they don't like it and tell them what we actually believe in and why we're here. But sure. um, of course, yeah, there's artists we always want. From our, from our point of view, there, yeah, there is that hit list of people who would like to get on the station. But I feel like the people who actually make the station what it is are the people who aren't, aren't the sort of recognised artists or the recognised DJs. Um, I mean, we, start, we started off with 90% um, of DJs on the, on the station that no one knew about, and they've helped build, take it to where it is today. And um, I, the one thing we try and do is definitely, as, as we progress and the bigger we get, and, you know, we try, we, we, we try to encourage that and get a lot more young DJs and artists who wouldn't normally get the chance to play on an NTS or a boiler room, give them an opportunity to come on the station and you know, do their thing as well at the same time. I guess it's that kind of hunger and passion you were talking about. You don't want to try and kind of convince someone to come on. Is that if there's a load yeah, of people I mean, that really, really want it. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I mean, it's yeah, obviously there's certain names, like certain heroes for me. I'd love to get on the station yeah. and I'd love to like, you know, try and convince them, sway them to come down. But, you know, it's, there's no pressure. You know, it's, there's, 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 there's tons of people who love to do it and people who, you know, enjoy doing it. And again, like I said, it's, it's I mean, half the DJs who started with us are still on the station. And, uh, and that's sort of testament to the work they put in and the passion that they showed for the whole, for the whole thing. And that's you've got to remember about things like Boiler Room and NTS is they're not, we exist not to serve those huge names that we already know about. They've already been through, you know, all the traditional outlets and frankly, they can probably go on TV and command those audiences. Like the only reason we exist is because we support the mass of artists who were not getting coverage before that point in our generation. So if we want those big names, our personal heroes or whatever, the way to them is to keep doing the thing we're doing and yep. doing that well because those heroes come and they ask you to play and it's never going to be like a pitch that wins that, you know, wins that gets them in or whatever and how about you guys how do people get on Nowness how do they get your attention and uh, how do people get noticed for representing uh, with Nowness so it's basically every single film is kind of a digital premiere or an exclusive but the idea is um, we're really open it's, it's a total mix between stuff that we commission and we curate uh, yeah it's a mix between curating um, people literally just submit films all the way through to working with labels with publishers with um production companies all the way to us working as a as a normal magazine like coming up with editorial ideas series ideas wanting to work with a hit list of directors or a hit list of talent um it's kind of really open but yeah it's we want to keep it as open and as flexible as possible basically yeah and for us uh, getting on represent is just like getting your music on represent is just the DJ will find you and they will hunt you down and they will get you on represent. Um, but in terms of like talent and the DJs, um, we're kind of always open to like new young people joining and there's like so many training programs that represent put out um, all over London or in the various boroughs. Um, so kind of always keep an eye out for new young people who might not have done anything like this before. Like I think pretty much everyone on the station. It's their first radio station that they've ever been on. And it's like getting attention from other bigger stations um, in terms of like who are looking for talent for to join their platforms. Uh, so it's definitely like a strong stepping stone. That's cool. Um, thinking about the platforms that you guys work with and, and the sort of independence that you have from being online, 
do you feel that you can you have complete creative control because you're online because you act as an online platform or would you be interested in ever considering you know a more traditional broadcasting format yeah well well sorry we're on um we're on fm across london as well um but it's more difficult to like keep a track of because we don't pay for like people to go and find out who's listening to represent through a survey or anything like that um but we've still definitely got that freedom um to literally do crazy things like Stormzy's on after me and he just like does really crazy things. I'm not going to say his DJ name because I, I literally can't bring myself to, but you can Google it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then there was a show that I produced when I was really, really young, which had uh, the boss of Southwark Council come into our studio <laughs> and had 14-year-olds ask him which estate he wouldn't walk through at night. <laughs> and he lied. <laughs> he was like, they're all very safe, everything's <laughs> nice. Um, but just like the fact that we got to do that with like this big shot guy and just totally embarrass him on air was really really great. That's cool. How about you guys? Um, from our point of view, um, yeah, the the being online gives us a total independence. Um, that's why we um, and that's kind of why we decided to go for the online. I mean, getting an FM license in London is nigh on impossible anyway. Um, it's all been used up and. Again, you know, the restrictions that an FM, well, a commercial FM license brings just will completely defeat the whole point of NTS. Um, it's, it's, it's an idea we sort of play with every now and again. You know, it's, um, it's, 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 like, boy, it's like what Blaze um, sort of mentioned about Boiler Room in Berlin. A lot of our listeners, only 50% of our listenership actually comes from the UK. The rest of it comes from the rest of the world. Um, I'm not sure what actual percentage comes from London, but having a local FM license in London would change that completely. But um, we, we um, it, it, that freedom we have is is sort of irreplaceable and sort of helped. I, I think it's sort of it, it's 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 that sort of alternative that people want from sort of FM commercial radio, and you can't do you, you can't do what we do on FM radio. You can try it, but I can imagine we'd have probably been lost our license by now if we tried. <laughs> yeah. It's a really complicated one for us because, uh, you know, we're a visual, we document things visually primarily. And so we think of ourselves in like reference points to like, um, to that. And like, and, you know, if we think about music TV when it was fantastic, uh, pre-internet in the 90s and, and MTV or whatever, there were, you know, it was a controlled industry and they, they controlled millions and millions of eyeballs. And there were actually positive sides of that in that they, they were able to take risks. They could put Aphex Twin before he was famous on TV and have millions of people watching, consuming, and finding out about Aphex Twin because they controlled, they were one of three or four gatekeepers to music culture. Come the internet, everyone has a choice. We can all access what we want and it's completely democratized and that's why we exist. At the same time though, like, you know, we're still up against TV and uh, it's a challenge because we have complete choice. Um, but now we're in a world where, like, for us to document music culture, we do 30 shows a month in 50 different countries, and we are filming micro-scenes and specialist tastes one by one and speaking to those audiences one by one, which is the opposite of what TV or a massive magazine can do. Um, the challenge, I think, is how, you know, we get, we get that kind of curatorial power that they once had without it being because people have no other choice in the matter. Um, and we think of things like... You know, like this this year will be um, 
it sounds awful in the context of this, but you know, like distribution and like how can we how can we essentially get this music to millions of people without compromising and having to make it crap and being victims of the whole thing we started against. Uh, but I think there are ways of doing it. We've proven it so far. We speak to people very individually rather than trying to send out one big message to everyone. And when we think of distribution and platforms, I think FM's obviously not so relevant to us. Um, but we wouldn't go on TV either. I think for us, we need to make sure our content is fantastic and the way we document music is done really complementary to the music and the scene or to whatever it is, the subjects. Um, but we also need to make sure that it's available on your phone, on Apple TV, on Samsung, Sony's, Playstations, Xboxes, on every single place where I would, and I do now, like I just bought a TV for the first time in 10 years or something, and I actually find myself watching stuff off TV, not TV, but the apps and the access to YouTube, Daily Motion, the BBC documentary you sent me yesterday, like that kind of thing. And William should be up there too. Uh, so I think there are ways we can very like cleverly get back those eyeballs and that attention without having to screw with our curation and the music we put out um, and I do think that inevitably like thinking of those sort of massive steps up is going to be vital for all of this to survive um, and that's you know the whole mission of Boiler Room growing and getting bigger and is to advance underground music forward and get great music to more people um, so so yeah I think it's going to be somewhere between going all the way back to TV and where we are now which is going to be probably more big digital platforms I was going to ask Terence what he thinks yeah, for us, um, actually, talking about just jumping on what Blaze was saying about things like Apple TV, etc. If you go, you know, we're, I think what we cr what we do is kind of different and quite interesting. So we're we normally put in the kind of highlighted apps or channels for loads of things. So if you go into Apple TV and you go into Vimeo, we're one of their highlighted channels. But going back to say what I would say would be, we try and take more elements of programming or how you can serialize content or basically different ways to tell like the stories or tell these films um taking elements from film from script writing from uh you know that idea of this traditional industry um i think we want to take some of that and then kind of mess around with it fuck around with it and put it on online because it is online and for example everything from say the features that we write uh, it's quite funny like you know, a small percentage of people who watch the films then go and click through and watch the features. But the amount of, say, effort we go and put in to make sure it's one of them might be a New Yorker-style piece, one of them might be a piece where literally you'll find out all these facts and figures and really fun stuff about the film. Um, or one of them, you know, we try and promote this idea that nothing has to have a start, middle, and end. Like, you go to school and everything has to have a start, middle, and end. But we don't live in that world anymore. And so I don't want that as a, as a reader or, you know, we, I want a feature that you can read and you're left on a cliffhanger. Like, I want to steal ideas from screenwriting for how what we do, you know, how we basically present all our films or how our platform is, is consumed, I guess, without going to super, like, marketing terms. But that, that idea that we can take elements, or anyone can take elements from bro traditional broadcasting and then use it to how we want to use it. Um, so yeah, that'd be that my aspect of it. Like a key, I mean, like, I know I don't want to talk too much, but a key thing from that, I think, is that we, if all of us or, you know, we've, you know, uh, been a kind of first mover or whatever and like uh, taking advantage of the internet being democratized and using webcams for us and whatever uh, to reach audiences and so on, I think the bottom line for, for us and probably everyone is we have to keep pushing and being as sort of ambitious as TV probably was when it first started. And yeah, exactly. You, like it was cool yeah. when you were talking about MTV because it sounds like such a 
poison chalice right now, but there was a time when it was great, yeah. basically. And if you can get to, yeah, so yeah. Can you imagine TV or, or, or sort of FM radio having a, some sort of like punk revival where it could just be crazy again? It's a funny one. We, um, we've, we've met with Ofcom a couple of times because um, they're trying to understand how, how to, because they, they have no jurisdiction over the internet. Um, and they, they do have a um, DAB and FM, obviously. And there's, DAB has never really taken off. It's, it's really just moved from FM to online. And so they're trying to understand how to work their way around. Um, from my point of view, I, I don't, FM is one of those things that will always be there. It's useful. The internet is, uh, it, it's not, it's not a, it, it's something that sort of was created and it will sort of always be there. The, the internet can't reach as far and wide as sort of FM can. You know, you can, you can live in some little island of Scotland where you won't have access to the internet, but you always have access to the FM radio. Um, so, but in regards to sort of, I think it sort of works more on the sort of programming side of things. That I, I, I can't personally, it'll be hard to see an FM radio station try to sort of take on, the, take the risk that a lot of online radio stations take in regards to programming. And that's because there's a lot more sort of commercial restrictions on them. There's, uh, there's, the, there's, the, there's the licensing fees that are a lot higher on FM than, than they are on the internet. Um, and there's, there's, there's this all different costs to solve. So in regards to having that sort of punk revival and sort of, I mean, having a punk revival means sort of taking risks. And I don't, I just don't feel that it's that room to take that risk just because of the commercial restrictions that they have on them. But at the same time, I never really worry that like radio is going anywhere. Like, I definitely don't worry about that because I feel like it's such a like intimate and immediate medium that like in the face of the internet, which can actually be a bit faceless at times. Yeah to have someone literally talking in your ears and telling you that they love this song and you should hear it is really special and don't think it's going anywhere. So this is one thing I always like to sort of tell people about. There's, there's a difference between NTS and, and Spotify. Like Spotify is a music database. It's not, it's, not, it's not an online radio station. NTS has humans running, sitting in a studio broadcasting 24 hours a day. And um, when people try and put us in the same bracket, I remember when I first um, tried to get some money, I went to a few places to try and get some money to start off NTS. And I didn't, obviously I didn't get any money from them because I thought it was a crazy idea. And the guy said, well, there's Spotify and there's LastFM and they're massive, and so why am I gonna give it to you? And that, that is the difference. It's basically taking sort of traditional radio and putting it out through the internet and just doing, just, just doing what, you know, what can't really happen on radio at the moment. I mean, Femi's point on like the commercial, uh, how much the commercial side of traditional radio impacts like creativity and so on is true and it's I think it's you can build a business from ground up and find a clever way of commercializing it and growing as big as you need to uh, if you're online or digital from the beginning I think if you're a traditional if you look at the, the BBC's of the world like essentially they have to take a policy of you do your cool stuff late night hours for a couple of hours and then you do mainstream all day uh, and that's fantastic but it's it's because of the commercial restrictions of who they are they have an existing infrastructure and they communicate with millions of people driving home from work there's no way you can just go and contradict that and start playing whatever you want so what was the original question i don't know i can't yeah <laughs> um <laughs> well yeah the punk rock thing i guess 
I think TV could. I mean, I'm like shocked constantly that we still have not had a contact from Channel 4 or anyone. And I've seen so many rubbish TV shows they've tried to do. I assumed you guys would have been like hit up about Animax oh, House Party. That was so bad. And it was like, a Channel 4 um, Boiler Room esque. Oh, exactly. The Boiler Room rip off. But yeah, it was just. New Year's thing that they did. That they could have. Honestly, we'd love to do stuff on TV. We'd only do it for like status and maybe if they paid us. But like, I don't think. I think that's as punk rock as they could get in the next few years is taking a few more risks on interesting stuff. And if Channel, you know, I'd love to do something with Channel 4 as a one-off and use all those eyeballs to try and do something different with good music. Um, but I think it's going to have to be, you know, the moment TV does something punk rock is hopefully when we get control. and um, You could be like there. the uh, next Jules Holland. Yeah, <laughs> we, everyone talks about starting a TV show. And, we, you know, we've talked about it too. But I just, the idea of a TV show, again, contradicts everything that happens online now and it's a romantic idea of course we all want the word and so on but um would you take the presenting gig no i've never once been on camera i don't like it um i think with that idea about our platforms gonna be punk like if there's a punk revival my thing would be like i just think the players within those can channel more punk ideas than say the platforms themselves so whether it's artists or directors or the you know the radio hosts or I think it's about them. There's a revival in the talent, not in arguably the platforms. Awesome, thank you. Just can I just quickly say, well, Marth and I were quickly discussing. Um, uh, was it cereal? Yeah, the, yeah, so that, if there's a, if there's a, ever going to be some sort of punk revival in radio, it probably will be in talk radio and radio documentaries, not in music necessarily, because I mean. I mean, I guess it's sort of similar to what Vice do and the sort of news that they cover. You know, they're basically doing stuff no one else would do. And um, I think with radio, with, um, with This American Life, has been, even though that's a bit rubbish now, but with all the things that have come from it and Radio Lab and all this really interesting topics happening on radio, I think talk radio, that could be sort of, sort of lasting. Yeah, it's super exciting time for talk radio. Like even one of the One Extra Stories documentaries that I made, uh, we put like a version on SoundCloud. It was the story of future R&B. Uh, and it's had like a quarter of a million listens for an hour of speech radio, because obviously it's for SoundCloud. We had to take all the music out. Um, and it's just amazing to see those kind of figures for <laughs> an hour of talking. <laughs> It's the same as where you see like BBC put out amazing documentaries, but the music coverage will and not, you know, but for the broad BBC, the music coverage will be different. Um, I guess it comes down to like, you know, how democratized that as a genre has become. Uh, music yeah, like I'd say podcasts that are basically talk radio, things like One Epstein and The Champs are yeah. way more entertaining than an hour of arguably a lot of DJ mixes because there's, you know, you need to just get the quality out there and then with talk radio and, you know, just interesting interviews and podcasts, no one, you know, it's just taken a little while. Yeah. Cool. I think we're going to um, dip into some Q&As if, uh, if anyone's got some. So I think there's going to be a couple of mics going around if anyone's got a question for our Hands esteemed out. panel. Get your hand up. There's a question back there. And everyone else can get thinking. Um, I've got a question for Femi. Um, so maybe six months ago, I think Village, uh, East Village Radio in New York went under. That's right, yeah. Because um, they were facing some cost. I thought maybe with collective societies, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, I'm not actually sure what happened there. Is there some, some threats that are, you have to deal with as well? Um, we, we, we have to deal with PPL, PRS, which is all the music licensing bodies. Luckily, they cover a lot of... Um, 
jurisdictions around the world. I'm not really sure what happened with EVR. Um, I know a few people who had shows in EVR, a couple of them actually joining us soon, but I think what happened more than anything was the guy who was running it just kind of lost interest in it a little bit. He had a load of other things he was doing at the same time. And um, I think, I, I mean, in regards to the cost side of things though, pressure, yeah, we, we have to, you know, it's crazy how it works. The um, way licensing works is different online than it does on, M on FM, traditional FM radio. On FM radio, you, you pay percentage of your revenue in licensing costs. Online, we have to pay for every single person that listens. So we pay a certain percentage of every listener. We pay like 0, 0.00 something for every listener. And with our listenership growing, those costs add up. So it's, um, it's kind of a sort of dated system for the internet. They haven't sort of adjusted it yet. But I can see why that could have been a problem for them as well, for EVL. So, so when your costs go up, how, how do you fund uh, such a fun, a fun enterprise? It's, uh, it's a lot of work, man. It's, um, we, do, we, 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 we do a lot of work with brand partners. We have a lot of that. We do a lot of events. You've got That's no it. idea how hard both it's, of us have to work for that stuff. It's crazy. It's like, it's a 24-hour shift. But, you know, we, apart from that, we have 160 DJs that we have to manage. But then there's also sort of um, talking to people who we're going to work with that help, that help fund the fun stuff that we actually want to do at the same time. So it's, um, but also find, working with the right people, you know. And I know this is an issue we both have because there's certain people that approach both of us and be like, uh, nah, I don't really want to do it. Cause, but, um, but, then, but then the money they offer is great. So it's just finding that balance to sort of, you know, work out. You've know? you got to remember as well, like we, for what we do, there is no accepted... You know, like for radio, they can sell radio ads even, or you can, BBC can charge a license fee. For something as specialist as what we do, relative to billions of people around the world listening to commercial radio or commercial TV, it's com there is no, we don't, none of us make any money off like pre-rolls or audio ads or, or anything like that. We have to be like, look at every single partnership and be very clever about what we can do, but we do not get an easy ride. And I'd say Femi's point, and maybe he's lost passion for it or whatever is key, because if you're not willing to work 20 times as hard as any other media business or business to keep it going, it won't keep going. Uh, it's not something where you can just take subs anymore and like charge a door fee or whatever. It's, uh, it's an extremely complicated thing. I mean, in the beginning when we first started, we used to charge a lot of the DJs, because we, we weren't working with any. We, charged, we ran it on, on a sort of traditional pirate model, which was the DJ pays to do a show. Um, you charged me. Yeah, I charged Terence to do a show. <laughs> I've known Terence for almost 10 years. I had, I had to charge him to do it. it was, it's a really difficult thing, you know, just asking friends to do shows and then saying, okay, it's going to be 40 pounds this month to do your show. Um, but then, you know, we sort of slowly moved away from that and um, we're slowly moving away from that because we're sort of, you know, when it comes, again, when it comes to sort of partners we work with, rather than just doing a one-off event, we try and do like a year-long partnership or two-year or you know, you know, and just sort of keep it to a minimum. So we work with three people for a year, and that sort of pays the salaries of the f uh, five people in the office and pays um, pays for the running of the, of the studio at the same time. I think something worth mentioning as well. Like, I don't know exactly how old EVR is, but it's been around for a long time before. It's like one of you know, it's like an original internet radio. And I think from the moment we started doing Boiler and Femi started doing NTS, like you walk straight into the sort of shitstorm of like essentially there is no revenue stream to start something like this you know we went around for 12 months before we even made a penny or did any kind of anything to generate revenue we were lucky enough to have a free space and i had a day job made two grand a month and used that to pay a couple hundred pounds on red stripe or whatever and similar situation you're doing cleaning company like but the point is is that we walked into a situation where we had to be quite uh 
you know opportunistic about all the different like how you create a revenue model for something like that and i think perhaps and i'm just speculating evr may have begun in a more traditional sense of radio and charge subs or whatever and then struggle to evolve into where we are post 2010 where you have to do brand partnerships and think of things in a very different way um, and struggle to adjust possibly cool can we get across to another question anybody hey yeah okay so i'd like to know how you sort of a group feel about platforms such as twitch that have behemoth viewership and yet allow for community collaboration to direct the broadcast itself? Do you think that will be something which content you have to plan for with your audience growing in the future? Ugh. Sorry, that was a bit of a weird sentence. Or do you think curation will still supersede any sort of direct audience navigation? You've got to be careful what you say here. Like twi Twitch as well, you've got to remember, and it's a good point, but Twitch is a gaming platform uh, where I don't really understand it. It's a gaming platform where people live stream themselves talking about the computer game or something crazy and millions of people watch it. I think 50 million a month or something use it. Uh, and within that, it's a you know heavily UGC, user-generated and user-powered platform. Um, we're quite different than we began as curatorial brands and we build audiences by curating and by, I guess, navigating through the abundance of music content that's out there uh, and providing quite an, a valuable service in filtering through that as to what's good based on our personal taste and then as we grow through our different curators' tastes um, and then putting that out there for the public to consume. I think in gaming, it's a slightly different world. It hasn't been democratized at all. So uh, essentially... I see it as vaguely incomparable, but to answer your question on whether user-generated, you know, whether we would, we personally would curate from the users, uh, I think we'd like to. We just don't have the facility yet to have the kind of, um, you know, user-powered forums and create a platform like that. But I think it's an interesting thing, you know, people requesting where they would like to have a boiler room or when they think there's something really interesting coming from around the world. Uh, I think is important. At the same time, I kind of feel, and this might be totally inaccurate, that the result of music being democratized unlike gaming is that, you know, generally I think the good stuff rises to the top and you find out about it. Like if someone releases a good track, it can really go from like 20 plays on SoundCloud to 20,000 and you do, if you have good bookers and programmers, you can find out about it. So I think there's less of a need for us to be yet another open platform for an unknown musician. There's so many out there and I think it's more our job to sort of scan the SoundClouds, YouTubes and everyone else. Um, it could yeah. be interesting for sure. And I think when you like make the choice to tune into a radio station or whatever, it's kind of about trust and you kind of are putting your trust for the next however long you're going to listen to into that curator. So I think to take that out of it, I think people would like it for about 10 minutes and then they find it like a bit too much responsibility and they'd kind of like want the old thing back. So like <laughs> I do think that it's interesting, but I think for radio it's about like trusting and putting your trust into a DJ and then just going with it and discovering new music. And the thing, like that thing on gaming and where it's at, like it's kind of like MTV was in the days of music TV when it was good. It's still a controlled market where you have the four huge brands creating the games and making billions out of them and not getting piracy. You know, that you can't go, there is no SoundCloud for gaming where any game developer can go and put it up and develop an audience of five, 10,000 people. The result of that is that there are huge communities living beneath those games and so weird concepts like Twitch can exist. With music is the opposite. The days of the huge communities listening within beneath music, like an MTV in the 90s, are over. And now, I don't know if anything as strange or as niche as that could exist. Uh, it's not strange as... I don't think you would have, like, a platform 
uh, like Twitch, where like people were, I don't know, I can't really describe what Twitch is and what it is. But do you see what I mean? Like gaming's a, a it has the ability to have those huge, very focused communities living within them. I don't think music does. Music actually, you need more people to clean, you know, filter through the amount of content there is and hopefully present good stuff. We've got a question down there, right down the other end. Can we get a mic over? I'm not sure how to ask this, but um, what do you feel about um, sort of peer um, platforms who sort of copy business models, like copy your business models, for example, and, you know, maybe they didn't do the, the thing, they didn't do what you guys did before, but seeing what you did, they copied it, and they have a big platform, so there's like a bigger reach. And then... Two questions. Two questions. My question is the opposite of Akin's question. Do you see a second wave of younger people? You've all been doing this for quite a few years now. Do you see young people getting inspired who don't have a big platform, who do similar things, who aren't ripping off, they're excited and inspired by now, as they represent, and they might come and ask you for advice? Is, is there a second wave of boiler rooms and things like that? I mean, I, from, from my point of view, uh, Anyone, you know, is welcome to go and copy anyone else's business or, or idea or whatever. But oh, that's what I don't mean. Like just mates. I mean like like a big music magazine, NME, doing live streaming, for example. Or but it, actually, that's a, like an interesting point because you know we live live broadcasting, internet or TV has been around for fifty years. We never invented that at all, and that's never what's been special about what we do. So a lot of people say like you know, what if Universal and so on, huge labels start streaming their gigs? And I'm like, that's, we didn't invent streaming. That's not why we exist. We used cheap streaming as a way of being idealistic in a world where that wasn't possible, especially in video. Um, so I think people can come along and do it. And I think like Channel 4 coming along and doing it and doing it badly is just a sort of example of that. It's like they missed the point. The streaming wasn't the new thing. They've been able to do that for far longer than us. Uh, it was the curation and the way we addressed lots of different audiences who each had their own tastes. And I think to Hannah's point, um, you know, we got asked, I got asked a question the other day about how do we, you know, in a very fast changing world, how do we stay relevant? And I think like, you know, again, we were born into a world where things were changing six months on six months on six months. And we all got used to it. You guys too, like of, of every time there was a new band that we thought were great, two, three months later, everyone thought they were rubbish because they're not commercial or whatever. And things changed so fast. We went through the 90s just at the, when I was younger and then before we knew it, it was the internet and then Napster had gone and then LimeWire had gone and then iTunes. Suddenly I'm buying music for 99 pence for a file that doesn't exist. Uh, and no, no offense. <laughs> uh, uh, but, the, but the point is, is that we, we kind of like, we went in with our eyes open that things move very fast. And I think the only way you can stay on top of stuff now is by being extremely insecure and paranoid about, you know, what might, um, what, what's happening. And to build your business is a very responsive one. And like, in terms of the way we curate and the way we think of our like development and so on, we have a lot of young people who are freely involved and we're a small enough company to sort of involve all of that. Yeah, I'm all about Hannah's question about having a second younger version of, of everything. Like, that's the only way of this the whole thing going forward. And I think it's just that mix of, you know, I think Nowness is kind of a different thing within this because it's always about quality over quant uh, quantity. Like, we literally do one thing a day. 
Um, and that was to go against this the noise and all the just stuff that's out there. Um, but at the same time, like for if you break it down to it, all we're trying to do is do quality journalism and quality films that we really try and tell a story that no one else is kind of, or a side of a story that no one else is kind of doing um, in a different way. And I think if there's younger people doing that 100%, like I, I think that's that has to be the future because... I think, you know, what's great is when I was at Dazed, we were like a youth culture magazine. And then once the editors start to turn 30, you've got to take yourselves out and shoot yourself in the head. Like, we are not a youth culture magazine. And that's what I like about Nowness. You know, it's the, it's the graduation. We, we work with super young directors, super new music. But at the same time, we, there's a lot of people who have come to create a platform that really are, you know, our sub-editor is amazing. He's leaving in two weeks because he just got paid for The Guardian and he's looking after all the tech and culture for The Guardian. And... Our commission, you know, every person, whether they're an intern or an editor, has come from a very different background, but also just tried to really get involved in this idea of what we're trying to do with publishing or try and, you know, do something different. It's not just a cool young writer jumping up and suddenly becoming a contributor and editor. Like, you know, we just want to try and create interesting stuff. Cool. I think we've got time for two more questions if we're really quick. So we've got one there, and if we could get the mic to another question, if it's going to come. So uh, this might be a little bit like encroaching on questions that you've already had, but I was just wondering, a bit of a depressing question, kind of playing devil's advocate, awesome. but we're, we're talking about um, the democratization of the internet and the fact that it's almost become this kind of like Wild West playground where you can literally invent the rules that like big corporations and the commercial companies don't have to, uh, do, do have to abide by and they can't do that. Do you think there's kind of a shelf life? You talk about like, obviously needing to work with brands to fund it. Um, pretty soon, maybe these brands will be wanting to steer your direction. And then like, obviously Ofcom, maybe trying to get their fingers in on the, on the deal and, and, and limit yeah, what I you mean, can do. I mean, it's, uh, if, if they, the way it's, 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 it's a really good question. Um, from the sort of brand perspective, you just have to go. We're just gonna have to wait and find out. I think it's. Um, I think from sort of. Um, I, I think putting together the sort of stuff we also put together. Um, you you almost sort of um, you, you almost have to be a part of something. But, you know, we all come from a sort of similar. I mean, I've known these guys for about ten years. I've met Martha, but we all come from a sort of similar sort. Of, we 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 sort of come from the sort of London underground type music scene type of thing and. This, there's a demographic that a lot of these brands want to reach, um, and they can't reach them unless they have people that can reach them. And a lot of the people that sort of involve with these brands aren't from that demographic. So it's, I mean, it's it, it'd be interesting to see what happens, but I don't know. It might take them a while. I think you got to remember as well, like the whole reason that a brand partner comes to us is to be steered as to how to reach people. They don't come to steer us, otherwise it would be a totally, like that's just not, we'd be speaking to the wrong people. The whole reason we started these companies is to sort of have it our way, is to grow and reach these people, reach these audiences on our own terms. And the second that gets compromised, we'd shut it down sooner than keep going. We could all be making a lot more money doing other things, uh, you know, where we'd be willing to compromise that. Um, and I think, you know, like, I mean, and just to sort of explain in a simple way, like, we spent a f the first few years of starting a business finding it very difficult to understand, like, where's the kind of fine line between appeasing a brand partner and, uh, and doing what we want to do. And actually, we realized eventually that there was much more value 
and much more value for the brand as well in us sort of cherry picking some of the most incredible opportunities out there, almost philanthropic things that we could never do with a webcam, we could never do on our own productions or whatever, and sort of marry those genius ideas that often came from uh, a super creative artist or management or label, marry them up with the brand's vision and make them possible. And if you think of that as sort of philanthropy and music or whatever, that's been a, an important part of music culture since early ages um so i think you know what that should show to you is like an evolution of us trying to adapt as to how we work with brands and survive but it's only getting better and we're only making more things possible for the artists who deserve it and who are super interesting and giving them more power and promotion uh not the other way i think if anything our brand partnerships were pretty sloppy the first few years and they're actually getting really good and this year we've got some incredible stuff coming out so i think yeah i don't know i think firstly brands don't come to us for to be anything other than steered and, and secondly it's only becoming a sort of more slick operation for all of us as to how we work with them uh one last question who wants to close it up what's uh what's the kind of we've we've called this the future of broadcasting what's uh what's coming up what's going to change what's going to stay the same what's exciting from our point of view um um the program the the so the the, the sort of ethos and the program it sort of remains the same um our main thing is just to increase our audience worldwide the sort of different ideas and strategies we have of doing it uh, we launched our second channel um, yesterday um, which is sort of just dedicated to sort of a lot of our sort of international broadcast but um, there's so many different things we're working on um, we've got a strategy for the next five years and um, yeah we'll see what it's happens it's in safe hands yeah I hope so I was gonna be repeating stuff I already said but essentially I think for us it's two things one is uh, to improve now that we have actually grown a bit from a webcam to proper cameras, to improve the way we document uh, music culture broadly, uh, to make sure it is all, you know, you face a huge challenge with video and to make sure it is always complementary to the subject. I said that already. And two, I think is to, to essentially push this whole thing forward and to not remain like a little bubble. Um, you know, like in, in it, when we started, I think we did feel like it was like a little bubble in East London and we got recognition around the world from lots of tiny audiences. And I think it's to keep pushing forward and do things like be on Samsung TVs and Apple TV and like make this content as accessible as possible to the right kind of people. And essentially like, yeah, the second point being in a sentence to uh, grow without compromise. Um, Oh, I just hope the future of radio will look at speech radio more because it's something that I'm really interested in and find like really, really like satisfying and gripping. Uh, so hopefully we'll see a lot of that. And then for Represent, it'll be more about like multi-platform um, and kind of following what young people are doing because obviously it's run by young people, so we just kind of do that and then people kind of consume it. Uh, and then uh, for radio as well, like the visualization of radio and how we can make that like not just TV, but visualized radio. Uh, and yeah, that's all the stuff that I'm really excited about. Uh, yeah, mine is that these guys, Martha, Femi, Blaze, just basically take this and change pop culture. Like I, I feel that that's, that's what we all want to do and these guys can. Sweet, Sweet. solid yeah. ending. Oh, wow. No Did pressure. You get that? Did you get that? Thank you everybody. That's it from us. Thanks very much. Um, this will come out as a podcast pretty soon and we'll be doing more of these, so stay tuned. Cheers, guys. <laughs>